How are you? I'm good. Good. How are you? Good. Good. So maybe to to start with, well, I, I think that in the audience everybody knows uh, Ojar, but <laughs> hopefully, but if you if you can maybe reintroduce Ojar, what you do, and yeah, yeah, what you are now. Yeah, so Hajar is the uh, what we like to call the product experience um, uh, insights platform for uh, of choice for SMBs uh, and with market customers. So today, um, Hajar is installed of over a million sites um, and helping all of these sites to create experiences that the users can love. Um, the product is made up of different things um, that allow you to understand how to improve user experience better. For example, session replays, heat maps, and also being able to get the voice of the customers through, through feedback and surveys. Yeah. And so you had an amazing growth. I think you reached 60 million RR in 2019, being bootstrapped. Um, how did you do that? <laughs> yeah. We want to do the same all. So t tell us the secret. Um, I think, um, I mean, I don't think there is a, a secret per se. I think it is just um, executing well on a product-led growth uh, strategy. And when, when we think about product-led growth, I think it's not just about building a great product. Of course, you need to have a great product to be able to execute on such a strategy, but it's also about figuring out the kind of market you're going after, the, the product that solves the problem for these markets, what are your customer acquisition channels, and how you can rely on low-cost or free channels like word of mouth or SEO and these kind of things, but also how does the business model enable you to, to be able to sell uh, to a large audience and to that large market? But, well, well now everybody knows product-led uh, product growth, but at this time it was not something known. And no, there is no literature about PLG. Yeah. So how did you learn? How did you, what, what have you done to to be so successful? Yeah, I, th I think a, a lot of the PLG companies, uh, so now like we have the right terms to describe how to break it down and things like this, but I think a lot of these companies stumble on it almost by necessity. So if you look at the case of Hotjar, the idea about founding the, the company was to democratize access to tools that were otherwise available only to enterprise customers um, at very high prices. So from this perspective, the thesis was that if you make it available in a way that is accessible to a very large audience, then there is something there and like you could prove value. So A, you had to go after a very large, wide market. And to be able to go after this really large, wide market, you needed a broad enough value proposition and quick time to value so that customers can love your product very quickly and then consequently tell others about it because you want a marketer in one company in one vertical to tell a marketer in another company about your product. So that kind of like informed our customer acquisition channels. And if you put all of this together, how do you sell to this audience? You have to sell online, you have to self-serve, self, self, uh, self and the price points need to be accessible for most people. So that's kind of like, you know, how you started creating this fits, but now we have the language and the terminology yeah. to be able to describe this in a more uh, sophisticated way. Yeah, because, right, so after you, you see what, what you've done, but at this time, was it on purpose? Did you, uh, well, think about it, how we can improve each steps or? Um, in a way, I think, you know, one of the things that we can describe very well and whenever we talk about product-led growth is about how you don't want to break the different fits of your strategy or your go-to-market strategy. So 
what I mean by this is that we're always, when we think about the market we're going after, everyone is thinking product market fit. But there's also the fit between your product and the marketing channels that you use. There's also the fit between the channels and the, the business model and things like this. So while we didn't necessarily like put it in that framework all of a sudden, but we were always trying to think about, okay, actually, like if I do this, I might break this marketing channel that is very important for me. Or if we change that marketing channel, we will break our unit economics. Or, you know, Did it like happen? Uh, no, luckily we haven't. Uh, I mean, I don't think I would be here today if we <laughs> if we messed up the model, because I think it's really about trying to figure out how to start that flywheel and keep it going. And if it stops going, then the business starts declining. Yeah. Okay. And speaking about marketing and, and marketing channels, um, so you are at very low price and very low ARPU. Um, what kind of marketing channel did you did yeah. you try and did you use? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a good question because uh, definitely the risk that you have with selling at these price points is it's very easy to fall into the trap where your uh, LTV to CAC starts not making sense. So how do you make sure that you... Um, how much is it maybe for the audience just to... It has, uh, it, it has changed actually over the years as well. I think everyone has felt, uh, experienced the same. Like customer acquisition cost has been increasing over time. Uh, but I think we've always been managing to, to do it. So I think it ranges from a couple of hundred uh, dollars to sometimes like higher hundreds of dollars. But it depends on the year, it depends on the circumstances. Um, so I think this year, for example, is a more difficult year where customer acquisition cost is, is, a, is a bit higher. Um, but it's still, how do you bring it? Like, so there are two key things when you think about your marketing channels and that question. One you want your um, LTV to CAC to be healthy. So you want your customer cost to be very, very low because your LTV is also low, right? And two, you want your payback periods to be very short because if you're a bootstrapped company, you want to self-finance your growth, right? So if your um, payback periods are short, then this enables you to do it. So how did we do both? Like to keep the customer acquisition cost low, low we needed to make sure that the biggest chunk of our customer acquisition is coming organically through word of mouth and through um, you know ranking on SEO or content marketing, uh, social media marketing, things like that. Kind of like what we earn in terms of um, like placements, and then of course we do also like a, some paid acquisition as well that contributes 15 to 25 percent of our customer acquisition. Um, how do we keep the payback periods short? I think this is a gross margins game. You need to make sure that your gross margins are quite high. Um, and I would, as, I would argue that most bootstrap businesses have he much healthier gross margins than VC-backed uh, companies because this is really how you can make enough money on each customer to self-finance uh, your growth. And did you use um, I would say marketing channel that wouldn't work anymore? I'm thinking about, for example, the uh, WordPress plugin or this kind of, of stuff. I know that Yeah. They were a gold age for, yeah. for, for, for these kind of channels. Yeah. WordPress, uh, coincidentally, I mean, WordPress, I can't remember the statistic of the top of my head, but they are a significant percentage of the internet. So um, WordPress continues to be like a very big player uh, there, and we get a large number of signups from WordPress every single month. But to answer your question, um, I think at our scale now, you know, where we've... We've grown quite significantly over the last few years. One of the things we started noticing is that 
our marketing strategy for the longest part has been driven by demand capture. Whether it is demand for Hotjar itself, people go in Google typing in Hotjar, or people even, you know, searching for specific questions on Google to say like, hey, what kind of questions can I ask my customers in a survey or something like this? But all of these keywords, for example, if you want to think about it from a search engine marketing point of view, they have a capped level of demand. So at our scale, when we're trying to still grow at high double-digit growth every year, you sort of like start tapping out on that demand and your marketing spend stops being incremental. So the name of the game here is you start, if you cannot, if you're capturing all of the demand in certain areas, then you need to start creating your own demand and you shift a lot of your marketing strategies into more of the demand capture play. You know, you invest a lot more in brand marketing, you do more PR, you do events, you know, these kind uh, of so things. So you already see a switch in your, in your reputation. Yeah, yeah. And, and how do you create a moat uh, well, to protect the business? Yeah, I think uh, the thing that really distinguishes Hotjar, and this is something not only like our own perspective of what makes us successful, but this is something we hear from customers quite a lot, is how easy is it to, you know, get started? 67% of our customers install the tracking code and they start using the product within the first 15 minutes. So like the mode that we have is our ability to reach a very wide audience and penetrate the market at a fast rate. And this is really all due to this broad value proposition and quick time to value. And I think that quick time to value is the thing that we do exceptionally well. Okay. Um, be, be, before we, we, we are talking about the acquisition, uh, I wanted to, to see what the impact the GDPR in Europe Uh, yeah. add on your business because uh, when thinking about your business we are thinking about data privacy and and potentially uh, it could be like a threat for yeah. for Roger. how did you manage that um, okay so I, I, probably a good point uh, to mention here is there are different types of tracking right so when you look at a product like Hotjar or a product like Google Analytics they are not in the same category of tracking, such as ad tech companies, for example. Um, so these have like different kind of uh, relationships between the customer and the end user and the service provider and so on. But that nuance to understand what is, you know, healthy tracking versus what is more, you know, uh, difficult tracking from a privacy uh, point of view is a nuance that the customers don't have and the audience don't have. So when GDPR happened, I think 2018 was a year where we grew below the expectations that we had. Hard to gauge right now whether this was due to, you know, like privacy concerns from customers or is it because we also, I think we invested way too much into um, like the development that needed to happen and to make uh, our GDPR compliance. So kind of like our product development was very slow that year. So it's hard to really attribute what happened uh, that year specifically. But I think now, you know, a few years later, um, the European market has also like developed also their understanding of privacy. And now they can really distinguish between what violates GDPR and what violates more importantly. Um, and this is really our perspective is that we don't 
we care less. Of course, we care about the law, right? Like we care about what the law says. But our privacy perspective is really focused on what we think is right for the customers. And that usually supersedes um, what is designed by law. So really, like having that perspective of becoming privacy-centric and being, you know, privacy-focused by default has served us quite well. And it's something that our customers also see and appreciate in the product that we... Uh, Very interesting. Um, so now let's talk about the acquisition. Sure. Um, how did you decide to, 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 to sell? And, and also, what did, I would say, and purpose, did, well, did you, for example, hire a bank and ask them to look at all the potential uh, well, buyer? Or how did it happen? Um, we weren't uh, actively looking for a, for a buyer. Um, so Content Square, we've had the relationship with them for many years. Um, they are in the same category or in the same space that we operate in, but on the enterprise side of the market. Um, we share like a similar origin story because they were also bootstrapped um, for, for a few years before they raised capital. So we've been in contact for many years as, you know, as colleagues. And um, so like every now and then we've been talking and then like to, in 2019, we started having these conversations around like, okay, the, is there a potential for, for, uh, for a deal here that makes sense? And uh, for me and my predecessor, David, uh, the founder of Hotjar, we were, the way we, because we have a duty to shareholders also, like as board, as the board of the company, there is a fiduciary duty for, for the board, but also we have a duty towards our customer and our team. So the way we thought about it, there are basically three factors. We said, first of all, is this, a, like if we do this deal, is it better for our customers? And two, if we do this deal, is it better for our team? And three, if we do this deal, is it better for our shareholders? And in the discussions we're having, once we were able to cross off all three, we said, okay, like this is now a good deal and we should move forward with it. And uh, yeah, we we'll go ahead with it. Nice. And so did, did you see any change in the, in the company? Well, so now you are in a company that is not bootstrap anymore, uh, basically. And yeah. so did it change something or... Can you keep your DNA? Um, I, I, I think the answer is yes to both. I think we kept um, our DNA in a lot of ways because the way we wanted this to operate is we want Hotjar to continue operating as a separate brand and separate product within our market. Uh, but at the same time, it did change something positively, in my opinion. Um, I think the difference in between operating as a bootstrap company versus a company that has a significant amount of funding now that we have access to these resources and this capital, this capital, um, we still operate at the same, almost at the same level of efficiency uh, and profitability that we had before. But now this enables us to think much bigger in some areas where we can take bigger risks, where we can maybe explore some opportunities that were not possible without having capital. So um, if anything, like for me, like it has just unlocked some. Uh, new ideas and some acceleration opportunities in my mind. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I think we have time to, to take a few questions from the audience if you, if you have any question to, to ask Mo. Anyone? Oh, oh there, there's a mic. Um. First of all, congratulations. And, oh, thank you. Uh, you know, you mentioned WordPress as a great channel for growth for bootstrap businesses. 
do you see anything new these days, for instance, like Wix or, or other possible uh, partners, could be HubSpot as well, or uh, just yeah. other avenues for growth for bootstrap funders that you see today? Uh, yes, I think all the all of the above. Um, definitely, we see a lot of uh, growth coming from Shopify. We see growth coming from HubSpot. We see growth from Webflow, from Wix, from Squarespace. Like all of, uh, like I think the no-code movement as well has enabled a lot more people to come online, and um, you know all of these people coming online trying to figure out how to create great experiences for their users. But then they find uh, an opportunity to use Hotjar and help them figure out what to do. And, and do you think that one is stronger than the others? I, I think it's always informed by the size of, of these companies. Um, so definitely, I mean, if you look at Shopify compared to any other e-commerce SaaS player, Shopify, of course, is a bigger channel for us than, than, than most. Um, you know, like if you compare HubSpot with another company, of course, like HubSpot is bigger. So it's really, I think, the size of their marketplace and the app exchange. And the yeah, but then, then there is also the willingness to pay. That can be different from, for example, from for sure. HubSpot and Shopify. 100%. I think willingness to pay is a, is a big factor. But for me, to be honest, I care. For me, when I think about partners and you know these kind of channels, um, we also have a freemium product, and I also care a lot about spreading the Hotjar way into as many websites as we can, even if they don't pay. Like if they get value from it, this is enough for me because all I care about is they have dinner with someone else and they say, you know what? Like I use the great product; it's called Hotjar. Why don't you try it out? That is valuable to me too. You know, so that's kind of what uh, what we think about. Interesting. Other questions? No? Okay. Cool. Well, if, 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 there is, if you want to, to meet Mo and you, you, you're, well, you hesitate to, to ask a question publicly, uh, it will stay uh, near Founder Path booth. Yes. I'll uh, be uh, in the back here at the Founder so. Pass uh, booth if you have any questions or you want to say hi. Uh, please. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Mo. Thank you.